You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So in Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to pick up where Pastor Jabes left off uh, last week. And so we'll be picking up in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. And, um, and so if you would, open your Bibles there. Um, when, when Amanda and I got married in 2006, uh, I was 19 years old. Uh, we were 19 years old, and that was very normal uh, for Lincoln County, so don't think that that's strange. Teenage weddings are just a normal thing there. And, um, and so we were getting married, and, and we, had, we had dated for a long time. Many of you know our Nicholas Sparks romantic love story of growing up together and all that. And uh, so we had, you know, when you're, there's a country song, Everybody Dies Famous in a Small Town. And so uh, we, we knew lots of people. I think you know more people in a small town than if you live in a, in a bigger area. And um, so we began to like, you know, get lists of who we're going to invite to our wedding. And we're like, who are we going to cut from this list? Because we don't hurt feelings and stuff. So we ended up just like inviting everybody. Like we didn't care what the connection was. We invite everybody. And uh, we got married at Middle Fork Baptist Church, the church we were members of at that time. And they had like a little fellowship hall off to the side with like just a small door that you could see into the sanctuary. And they filled that up and people still kept coming into the church. And people ended up sitting in the choir loft behind us like while we were getting married, which was weird. Um, and, and so um, and then and then like our reception wasn't very fancy. We just had a cookout potluck out in the picnic shelter. And uh, my family's bluegrass band played and there were like kids running around without their shirts on. And it was just a beautiful redneck time. Right. Everybody had a good time. Um, but but that's what happens when you invite everyone in and it gets a little bit crazy. And, um, and that, I want, I want to tell you, that is my prayer for New Heights Church, that we would be so radical with our invitations, that we'd be so open to people from all walks of life that look different than us, that, that, that live a different lifestyle than us, that sound different than us, that vote different from us, um, that they would come in and they would hear the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And that our church would begin to just look more and more like the kingdom of heaven. And the more people in our communities that see us live that out, the more people would say, I want in on that. I want to be a part of that. And we get a picture of that in Ephesians chapter 3. The the entire chapter is really based on Paul's uh, theology of the church. Yesterday, Pastor Jeremy taught a cohort class here. And the students in that cohort were learning ecclesiology, which just means the study of the church. And they talked about and they spent their morning looking into what the church is. And the church, simply put, is God's people of all times and places. And so God's people make up what the Bible calls the church. And as we look at that in Ephesians 3, Paul tells us some detail into what it means for us to be a part of the church. And, and the main point I want you to see is that as we uh, repent of sin and become Christians, we're placed in the church. And once we're in the church, we are missionaries um, going uh, to everyone that, that we could possibly go to to share the life-changing news of uh, the gospel. Uh, I have four points that I'm going to walk through with you in this passage, um, and that the centers on the fact, first of all, that everyone is unworthy, um, that our sin disqualifies us, but yet everyone is still welcome. And so the, the act of Jesus on the cross welcomes jacked up sinners like you and me, and everyone has access to uh, come and receive this. And finally, we'll look at everyone having a uh, purpose and finding their purpose in the gospel. Um, I don't know if you've heard people say this, but um, I've heard people kind of refer to church attendance um, and how I've heard people say, like, if I would ever step foot in the church, the church would fall in. Or if this person would ever go to church, church would catch on fire, you know. Um, I've heard people describe themselves like that and describe other people like that. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It might be a reality in this building because the roof isn't in the greatest shape, uh, but it wouldn't be because a sinner walked in, 
All right, every time somebody walks into a church building, a sinner has walked into the church building, okay? Um, and so I always assure people, like, um, it's safe uh, to come into a church gathering, uh, no matter what your relationship with God looks like. We actually want to encourage that. We want to bring people who actually know very little about God and, and maybe don't have a relationship at all with Jesus. We want to invite them in to our gathering so that they can hear the beautiful news of Jesus and what he did for us in his perfect life and death. Um, in verse 7, um, Paul begins to show his own unworthiness, um, something that I want to place in front of you today and I hope that you can identify with. I hope that if you spend some time this morning looking at your own life, I hope that as you look at your life, you'll realize that you're actually very unworthy to be a minister of the gospel. But if you've trusted in Jesus, that's exactly what he has made you. Paul says in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so um, regardless of what has happened in your past, God has uh, stepped in, he's intervened in the life of a Christian, and he has transformed you, and he has impacted your present and your future. And so listen, at our church, I don't care what you've done. I care about what you're doing presently. I care, I care about what you will do in the future, but I, I truly don't care what you've done. And, and Paul's a good kind of case study here for us. He formerly named Saul and of Tarsus, and he was, uh, I mean, the, the plainest way I can say it, he was a terrorist of the church. Um, he terrorized the first century church. His job was uh, that he saw his life's goal and life's mission was to end Christianity before it actually even ever got started. Um, and it's like God looked at him and said, you know who I'm going to have write half of the New Testament? This terrorist. I'm going to take this man who is murdering Christians the Bible tells us that Saul of Tarsus stood at the execution, the stoning of, of the, one of the first deacons of the church. As they murdered one of the deacons of the church, they all placed their coats at Saul's feet. That was a, that was a signal of his approval and his oversight over, over the whole action. Um, we can deduce that he probably um, was, was involved with other murders of, of people who were persecuted in the church. Secular history actually records that the work that Paul was involved in before he became a Christian included the rape of women and the kidnapping of children from the church. I mean, just detestable things. And I hope that all of us who are coming here today maybe haven't done anything that extreme and I think this is exactly why God used a man like Paul to illustrate to us that no matter what we've done, we can come into the church and be made a minister of the gospel. All of us are sinners made into missionaries. All of us. All of us who are Christians, that's what's happened to us. We have come in as sinners. We've been changed by the grace of Jesus. We've received eternal life, and we've been made missionaries. The only question that remains is, are you going to be an obedient missionary or not? Or are you going to be... Um, disobedient. You're going to be lazy in the mission that God's given you. Verse 8 shows us how Paul looked at his ministry. He looked at it as a gift. He says in verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so the first thing I want you to see in verse 8 is Paul's humility. This is not a false humility. He's not posturing himself. I think Paul literally believed himself to be the least of the saints. He, he calls himself the very least of the saints. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, he calls himself the chief of sinners. That's, like, that's a nickname you get if you're in like an outlaw biker gang. That's not like a church nickname, all right? <laughs> like, like, uh, I'm not giving that nickname to anybody in our church. That would, that would run them off, right? 
Um, but he calls himself that because he believed himself to be that, he says, because he persecuted the church of God. Secondly, I want you to pay attention in verse 8 to how he views ministry itself. He views ministry itself, not just salvation, not just he's going to heaven, but the work of ministry, the task of taking the gospel to people and making disciples. He views that task itself as a gift. You see, we fall into this trap sometimes that we think the grace of God, the gift of God to us is just eternal life. I stamp my golden ticket to heaven, I punch that, and I sit back in a pew until Jesus comes back to get me or until I die and go and be with him. But Paul says the grace is not just eternal life, but the grace is also the ministry that's been given to us as Christians. You see, nothing in yourself has made you worthy to be a minister, yet God has made you a minister. We, we hear um, all the time this language used, and, and I, I would love to see the church stop using this kind of language, but when, when uh, men become pastors or when men answer a call to become pastors, we will s- frequently say they have, they have entered into the ministry. Well, I hope not. I hope they had been in ministry a long time because to be a Christian means you're in the ministry. Uh, actually, if you're answering the call to be a pastor, your ministry is to equip others for ministry. Ephesians 4 tells us that in the next chapter. Paul says that God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Listen to me very clearly. The preaching from this pulpit exists for your preaching outside of these walls. The the equipping of the saints is why we gather together. And the reason we get together is so that we can come together as God's family to worship him and bring glory to him and then leave this building as an army of missionaries equipped to take the gospel to those who need to hear it. And that work Paul describes as a gift, not a burden. And so when we wake up and we're like, oh, crap, it's Sunday. Listen, I, I get it. I understand that, especially those of y'all who have kids. Like, y'all seen that meme? It's like, whoever wrote easy like Sunday morning obviously didn't try to get their kids to church. I, I understand it, right? It's, 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 a, it's a burden. It feels like a burden sometimes. But, but when we just meditate on what the joy of our salvation is, is that God could have chose any any extraordinary and supernatural means to take the gospel to those who need to hear it, but he chose the ordinary means of you and me to take life-changing, not just life-changing, eternity-changing news to people who need to hear it. What a gift. What a grace to us. And in verse 8, Paul says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, these people who were far from Christ. Anyone who's not Jewish is, is what he's describing there. And he says, this grace was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The the word unsearchable in Greek is not found anywhere else in ancient Greek writing. Um, Scholars believe that it is a made-up word. So this just proves Paul's a redneck. Um, He made this word up. He uses it another time in the Bible in Romans 11.33. It's only used twice, and it's in the Bible. It's not in any other writing that anyone's ever found in the whole world. 
And so this made-up word, it's, it's hard to kind of conjure it out of its meaning and into English, but its root word means footprint. And basically what Paul is trying to show is he's trying to illustrate a tracker. It means unable to be followed after uh, something that's trackable, like a footprint. Or if you've ever shot a deer and you're following a blood trail and the blood trail runs out and you're like, oh no, and then you spend the rest of your day searching, right, until you got the flashlight out looking for uh, that blood trail. The idea that he's trying to convey and literally running out of the vocabulary to convey it is that is that the gospel is so deep yet so accessible that it comes to us so easily but we'll spend our entire lives chasing after it to know it deeper and to carry it to other people it is unsearchable riches it is untraceable riches it is untrackable riches and our unworthiness compared to God's goodness in the gospel is absolutely incomprehensible so much so that Paul just said I'm just going to make up a word for this you need to spend your whole life prioritizing this gospel. Your whole life needs to be shaped around the good news that Jesus lived the perfect life that you never could, that he died on the cross being a substitute for the penalty you deserved, and he has given you eternal life, and he's given you a mission to take that to everyone without exception. And so, okay, we're all unworthy. We've all found ourselves in a place of being unable to earn a place, if you will, but yet he's given us this mission to carry. And so the second thing we see is that everyone is welcome. Everyone's welcome to come out and hear this message. And I know none of us would probably come out and say that there are certain people that we don't welcome into the church or invite into the church, but I know practically that's not the case. And let me make it just very clear. Everyone, without exception, that you come in contact with you should be open to sharing the gospel with and inviting into the family of God. Rich, poor, black, white, Republican, Democrat, gay, straight, it does not matter. You invite everyone into this good news of grace. And the message is one of light. The, one, the message of the gospel is, is light that exposes the darkness in hearts. And it's, it's absolutely incomprehensible to me that Christians begin to posture themselves that I won't share light with people in darkness because their lives are too dark. Like, why would we not illuminate that with the truth of the gospel? You see, the message is one of light, and it exposes darkness in us, and then we begin to see sanctification and change. But for us to guard ourselves against people of different lifestyles or different backgrounds and say we're not going to take that to them is just absolutely contrary to the mission God has given us as the church. Verse 9, Paul says, It is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, to bring that to light. Last night, uh, our electricity went out at our house. I don't know why. There was no storm that I know of. Um, AP emailed us and said we were one of 14 people without power. We're looking out the window. Our neighbors had power. I'm like, I don't know what we did. I paid the bill. I know I did. But, you know, nevertheless, we were without power. And so my kids all get flashlights, as they do. And they began to run around the house with flashlights and shining those Ozark Trail specials in my face. Like as soon as my, my eyes would adjust to being in darkness, here would come a kid with a flashlight right in my face. And it was so harsh. I'm like, stop, do it. you're blinding me with these flashlights, right? And, and when we've been in darkness for just a little while, our, our eyes adjust to that darkness and then any light that comes in is just overbearing and overwhelming. But imagine being in darkness a lifetime how harsh the light can seem. 
And God's called you to be a strategic missionary to people in your life. And sometimes I think we feel like we're either going to shine no light at all or shine it straight in their face. What if we would take the word of God and illuminate people's paths at their feet and bring them along with us and let them peer into the life of Jesus' beautiful church with all of its flaws and failures, but in its imperfections, preaching grace, that God has redeemed us even though we're sinners, and let them gradually have their eyes adjust and begin to see, man, I can get in on this too. I can repent of my sin too. I can be adopted into this family too. So I want you to ask yourself today, are you walking in darkness as soon as you leave this place? Just turning your light off, going along with the world, staying in darkness, Or are you blinding the people that you're trying to reach? Ask for wisdom from the Holy Spirit of how you can bring people into his church. You see, what's the plan that Paul is revealing? He's revealing, well, Pastor James preached it last week. He calls it a mystery. And the mystery that is revealed, he calls it the mystery of Christ. That's the gospel, how God would save sinners through a cross. And you are an ambassador of that message. And who do you take it to? Verse 8 literally tells you everyone, everyone without exception. But the people that we take that message to, how does Paul describe them? He describes this message as being hidden from them for ages. Hidden from them. Last week, Stephen and I went to a conference and heard a missionary speak, and he told us how over 3,100 people groups in the world are unreached and unengaged with the gospel. This is why we give our money and why we send people and why we go. Because people who have never heard of the saving grace of Jesus need to hear. That's our purpose as the church. Verse 10 actually tells us that through the church, that's an important clause I need you to not miss, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's probably a reference to demonic powers and angels, that that these spiritual beings are looking into what God's doing in the church, and they're amazed. I think sometimes they're amazed by how much we screw it up, but sometimes they're amazed by how much God works through messed up people like you and me. And the wisdom of God is made known through this and is represented to the whole earth. And how will it be made known through the church? Listen to me. Paul, of all people... He he knew this truth better than anyone, that God could save however he wanted to. You remember how Paul was saved? He was on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus so that he could arrest Christians and drag them away to imprison them. And Jesus shows up, just boom. He hears a voice. He's blinded. I mean, his conversion is completely supernatural. There's nothing natural about it. Nobody like rolls up to him with like a gospel tract and you know uh, you know scriptures and, and it, like it's just Jesus just shows up. Don't you wish like the people in your life that are lost, Jesus would just do that? It'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? And Paul knew that Jesus could save everyone like that. Jesus could save in that way, how, whoever he wanted to. But yet Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's writing scripture, he says, "How will the message go out to people who need to hear it through the church?" You see, God in His sovereignty. Like show, we get a peek into who God is in chapter one, and we see things like election and predestination. It means that anyone who becomes a Christian, they were chosen before the foundations of the world. That's hard for me to wrap my brain around, but then we get to chapter three, and Paul says anyone who becomes a Christian is going to be led into the family of God through the church. 
that God has ordained the ends as well as the means. These extraordinary supernatural ends of sinners receiving eternal life that they don't deserve are going to be accomplished through very ordinary means in the local church of ordinary, jacked up sinners like you sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it. And Paul continues to show access to this God that he speaks of to the Gentiles. The third point is that everyone has access. You guys ever get asked if you know somebody? And one of the things I say a lot, because I, I do have a lot of names that bounce around in my head, so I know I've embarrassed myself with many of you by forgetting your name or something. But um, sometimes I'll answer in this way. Is like, I know the name, but I don't know them. You ever do that? So it kind of like gets you, it's like it gets you out of trouble, but doesn't commit you to anything. It's a beautiful line if you need to use it sometime, okay? Um, so they'll be like, you know such and such? And I'm like, yeah, I know the name, but I don't know them. And sometimes I do know the names, usually Adkins. But, um, but you know, I just, like, I know the name, but I, I don't know. Um, well, this is, this is the picture that, that, that the Bible paints of people who are, who are not in Christ, that they know God the Father. They might not have intimate knowledge. They might not have a relationship with him, but the Bible tells us that they know who he is. Romans 1, specifically, Paul addresses this point. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so at, at everyone's core, they know God. But what people lack is the specificity of the gospel revealed in God the Son, Jesus Christ, brought to light through God the Holy Spirit. See, they have general revelation without gospel motivation. And let me tell you, general revelation of knowing that God exists is not enough for eternal life. There are lots of people who believe that God is real who are going to spend eternity separated from God in hell. Satan himself knows that God is real. The demons know that God is real. There are a lot of good old boys in Appalachia who know that God is real, but yet do not bow the knee to serve him. Everyone can see God, but they need to see the gospel. We went um, this past week, took a couple days off, and some friends of mine and I went to Great Wolf Lodge and didn't see a single great wolf up there. Um, but we went there and spent a couple days swimming, and we were in the... Uh, our kids are in the wave pool, and I look up and I see this woman like with her hand over her mouth, clearly in like panic. And there's a baby with a life jacket on, just floating in like the shallow end of the wave pool. And I, like my heart starts pounding, and I hear a lifeguard blow a whistle and begin to run. And I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm getting ready to get up. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm like somebody's got to do something. And I notice everyone's kind of standing around this baby, not doing anything. And I'm like, why aren't they like picking the baby up? Baby's floating face down. Why aren't they doing anything? And the lifeguard gets over and scoops the baby up. And then he, after he does it, just begins to carelessly carry the baby by one arm. And I, I realized the baby's fake. <laughs> it's a dummy. And it was a lifeguard training drill. I know y'all were scared, weren't you? And, and they were training the lifeguards and they do it with a bunch of people there. So they get like real type training with a crowded pool and stuff. And I was sitting there, and I was just like, why didn't we do it? Like, we all just stood there and watched. Why didn't we do anything? And I don't know, like, maybe, maybe everyone standing around was like, I'm my baby. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe, they, maybe they looked, because my thought was, 
If, even if I try to do something, the lifeguard's already running. I heard the whistle. He's going to get there before me. He knows how to do it better than I do. Maybe that's, maybe that's the case. Or maybe some people looked at it and they were like, ah, that can't be real. Maybe they were better eyesight than me, right? That can't be real. This is a real-looking doll. It was like a baby alive, you know, the creepy dolls that kids get. It, I mean, it was real-looking. But see, the lost people in our lives are, are looking at you. They're looking at the church, and, and they have believed whatever lie they need to to not engage. Maybe, maybe, they're saying, maybe they're saying, I can't do what they do. Like I looked at the lifeguard and said, I can't do what he does. Maybe they're saying, I can't, I can't get rid of this sin. I can't drop it. I can't break this addiction. I can't live the holy life that they live. Maybe they're looking at it and they've, they've believed lies of nature and, they, and they've believed lies of secularism and science and said, that's fake. I don't believe it. I think it's all made up. I think it's fake. I don't know what their excuse may be, but listen to me. There are lots of people around you who have lots of excuses and they have access and they see it, but yet they're unengaged. They don't step toward the gospel and they take no action. Christian, can we step toward them, please? Instead of standing just like those people in the pool, not knowing what to do, can we begin to step toward those people that have made every excuse possible to not engage in the church? Can the church engage them? This is the, the mission that Paul is painting for us that we would not just be saved and sitting, but we would be saved and going as missionaries so that everyone around us would have no excuse that we tell everyone of the good news that rests in our souls that we were damned to hell and for eternity with no hope, but yet we heard this good news. Someone told us of the good news of Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead, and it has changed our lives, and we want you to hear it now. And we realize you're standing there and you don't know what to do, but let us illuminate what to do. Let us help you know what to do. This is too important to just be frozen in fear. Verse 11, he continues, this was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You see, here's what happens when we become Christians. The... the the terror of our sin before a holy God is erased by the blood of Jesus. We're going to observe it in, in communion today. We take communion almost every Sunday at our church, and it's, it's a representation of Jesus' body that was torn and his blood that was poured out. And we, we do that week after week so that we ourselves are reminded that we don't have to be in terror because of the sins we've committed. Jesus has paid for them. And so this verse tells us, verse 12 says, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We can stand before God boldly. But man, I wish we'd stand before lost people boldly too. I wish we would go to the people in our lives that we say we love and we would cast our anxieties away and say that, hey, I'm going to let Jesus be in charge and I might stumble over my words a little bit, but I want to show them what's most important to me. First Peter 5 says, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus cares for us, and he's called us to a mission, and he wants to enable us and empower us and help us in this mission he's given us. And Paul at this time, he's locked up as a prisoner. He's in jail. He's, he's went through 
um, a lot of persecution. He planted the church at Ephesus, left the church at Ephesus, persecuted, arrested. And the final point is that everyone has purpose. You see, the gospel brings purpose to everything. It brings meaning to everything. The last verse we'll look at today is verse 13. Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Near the end of Paul's life, you begin to see, um, as he writes books like 2 Timothy and, um, and even the pastoral epistles, as he knows that he's probably going to, at some point in his life, be killed for, for, what he's, for the ministry he's doing. He begins to point believers to carrying on that mission. He, he realizes that he's not the only one supposed to be doing it. He calls other people to it. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. There's definitely a, 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 an inclination of Paul beginning to write that other Christians are going to begin to do the same things that he and, and his uh, associates had done. And suffering finds its purpose in the gospel, in Jesus, and what he's done for us. Happiness also finds its purpose in Jesus. Exhaustion, hope, joy, sorrow, and so forth and so on. All the emotions of life are for the purpose of God's glory through the church. And it is so easy to lose sight of that purpose. It's so easy for the busyness of life, the hard work of a career, the, the, the functionality of investing in our kids which are all good things, to creep in and overtake the gospel. And comfort, if we're not careful, becomes the end that we chase after. Listen, Lord willing, and I, I hope so, we're, we're finally going to close on that building down the street, a bigger building than this. Man, won't it be nice we'll be able to all be in one service after you all come out and work really hard and volunteer and help us with that? Right? <laughs> We'll all be able to move down the street next year and be in one service and have a bigger building and nicer stuff. And maybe our baptistry won't be filled up by the Lord anymore. Maybe we'll just do it and, you know, it won't rain inside anymore. You know, we hope for those things. But, but listen, I am dead serious in this. If, if a bigger and nicer building means the decrease of God's mission, I'd rather go back to renting a school. I'd rather go back to Giovanni's and increase the mission of God. Because if four walls make us too comfortable, then let's get rid of the walls. If, if, if comforts and, and nice things, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but if they hinder the mission that God has placed us on, then let them be cursed. And let us carry on the mission with fervor. You see, the church is for anyone. And we need to be about making sure they know that. Because most of the people in your life who aren't church people don't believe that. They believe it's only for people like you or only for people who are different than them. You need to make sure that they know that this message is for anyone. And then once they come into the family of God, repent of their sin, let Jesus clean them up, then the mission is for everyone. It's not our favorite preacher. It's not our brand or version of church. It is for all God's people to share this good news with everyone. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.